Hey everybody, this is Alex. Hey, it's Natasha. And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch TechCrunch's subscription product. Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there. It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you. Yes, you can use, I think, the best code there is. So don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is equity, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription. So head over to techcrunch.com slash subscribe. Use that code. Make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet. And now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity. This is a very special show. We often do Equity Shots, kind of these mono-themed episodes, but this week we had some other stuff to throw in. So Danny, welcome to the very first ever and maybe last Equity Leftovers. Thank you. It's great to be here. So much news. You know, it's really obnoxious for all these companies to announce news the Friday before Thanksgiving. Yes. Also, I think I've worked late more days this week than I have in the last three months combined. So if everyone could just lay off for a while, I would like to like work out or like cook. But uh, sadly, S1s have been dropping out of the sky. To give people a little bit of context, we're going to talk about venture capital returns, a couple of IPOs, the CEO change at Robinhood, and then some kind of local news to us, what's happening with HuffPo. But to kick things off, Danny, you wrote, I think, the best thing on the site this week, talking all about how if you didn't make a lot of money lately, you're kind of a chump. So walk us through it. So we had five IPOs in the last week. We had a firm, Roblox, Airbnb, Wish, and DoorDash since last Friday. Uh, I do appreciate that all these IPOs actually came off, I believe, at different days. So that's yes. super appreciated because the last time we had this wave in August, I think we had six in one day. So we do appreciate the 24-hour windows for us to catch up and actually see the sky. But the, the big news this week is literally $100 billion of potential flow is going into the public markets. And that means there are a bunch of founders, lots of early stage employees, and many, many, many VC firms that have made a serious amount of money. And yes. so this morning, I wrote a piece about basically the return. So three venture firms are going to return billion dollar plus, if not multi-billion dollar returns for their own firms. And another 15 firms are going to return about $100 million or more with just these five companies. So first of all, a small clarification. They didn't go public in the last week. They filed publicly to go public. And just a clarification, they're not trading yet. They will soon. Just a bit of semantics there. And then, Danny, when we're talking about these returns, these billion-dollar or $100 million returns, how are we valuing the companies in question? Are we looking back at the last private price? Are we doing an estimation of their current value? I just want to make sure everyone knows how we're doing the math on this so they don't get it twisted. All based off of the last valuation, right? So assuming that the companies go up, they could actually be worth more. If the companies stumble out of the onto the public markets, obviously they can go down. But we're looking at the last round price, which in some cases is actually very close. In Airbnb's case, it was just a couple of months ago. Yes. Um, in other cases, I wish it was actually a year, year and a half ago. And that's true for some of the other companies. So in, in some cases, they've already maybe doubled their revenue in the time since the last round. So we're kind of telling people the minimum expected value. These could go up and could be worth 2, 3x. Okay. Now, just for scorekeeping purposes only, who were the three big winners from these IPOs? The number one winner, at least in my view, which didn't have the most amount of returns, but it's actually in three of these five companies was Founders Fund. Wow. Um, Founders Fund owns to almost 12% of Wish, which we valued at around $1.3 They own about $240 million in a firm. 
and they own 5% of Airbnb. And because Airbnb is such a massive company, that's yeah. valued somewhere between $1 and $2 billion. So, so net-net, you're talking about more than $3 billion return just for them. The largest return by far was Sequoia. They own nearly 16% of Airbnb, somewhere between yeah. 3 and $5.5 billion. And they also own 18% of DoorDash, which is valued at around $2.5 billion. So they're looking at 5 to $7 billion of returns just with those two companies alone. Minimum, though, because I, I, I was talking to uh, the CEO of a uh, secondary exchange this week. I think it was Liquid Stock or something. And uh, I should have prepped that, but I didn't actually look it up before the show. <laughs> and uh, we were just riffing about the IPOs that have kind of come out lately. And we were just really both taken with the brand narrative around Airbnb. And my presumption, just spitballing here with you, my friend, and no one else listening, I think it's going to do rather well on the valuation side. So I, I think it could be even more money than that. Uh, for the VCs that are walking out with, you know, five, 16 percent. I mean, it's just it's enough money that it feels almost surprising, even though we've known this is coming for so long. I, I think that's exactly right. And and look, you know, same with Wish. I mean, Wish maybe is a less ha- household name in, in the Valley, but tens and tens of millions of people use the app all the time. We're, we'll talk more about it in a second here. But I want to talk about a few other firms real quick. So DST Global, which famously did the, the late stage Facebook rounds with Yuri Milner, owns 19 percent of Wish, valued at Oof. around two point one billion. 2.7% of Airbnb, so about 500 million to a billion, depending on how you count. And then a couple other big funds. Top Bank Vision Fund owns 22% of DoorDash, 3 billion. Formation 8, which is the sort of Joe Lonsdale founded predecessor of 8VC, owns 14% of Wish, $1.6 billion. And then, of course, we have another 15 funds we'll go through at some point later in the show. Or we won't. And you can read Danny's piece over <laughs> on TechCrunch.com because listening to Danny list VC firms. Not my top 10. But the point is, Danny, this is going to kick off really a wave of liquidity. A lot of LPs are going to get their money back. A lot of VCs will have turned paper returns into actual hard cash on cash distributions, as they say in the business. The party continues, is my view. You know, I expect this is going to make a lot of LPs pretty happy and maybe they'll reinvest more of this money back into the scene. I mean, why not? No, exactly. So, I mean, obviously, let's, let's dive into a couple of these companies. So, you know, Roblox filed yesterday, I think after the bell. Roblox is one of these companies that is like the most popular thing that almost no adults have ever heard of. Popular among kids under the age of 10. <laughs> so, yes. I mean, their demographic is somewhere in the 6 to 12 year range. I don't have kids myself, but I, I am told that Roblox bucks or whatever whatever the heck Robux. they're called. Robux. See, they, they elited that a little bit. Are the most popular currency for certain realms. So, you know, it doesn't come to the Fed's dollar policy anymore. It's literally Robux macroeconomic theory is driving these kids' economic decision. Super amazing revenues, Alex. So looking back in time, the company grew 139% in 2018 to $312.8 million in revenue. Very impressive. Grew 56% in 2019 to 4882 And then thus far in 2020, in the first three quarters, it's actually grown by 68% to $588.7 million over its kind of Q1 through 3 2019 result. So we've seen a revenue acceleration at scale, which is something that you very rarely see. Once a company gets big, it tends to grow by large dollar amounts of revenue, but the percentage growth declines. In this case, not the case. And Danny, I think it's just because of COVID and uh, people were just stuck inside. And that's a theme that I've heard a lot lately, and especially in these S1s. And I'm not surprised to see that a game company aimed at kids has done well in 2020. Well, certainly. I mean, it, it helps not to go to school. You know, what are kids doing these days? If they don't go to school, they're playing on Roblox. And, and the nice thing is, is in general, I think Roblox is actually fairly educational. It is a game. Uh, it is entertainment. But building your own world, interacting with other worlds, um, a lot of kids are learning how to script using yep. Lua, which is the programming language on Roblox. It's not a, a terrible message in 2020 altogether. I think the key part, though, is that the company is still losing money. So despite that growth, it lost $97 million in 2018, $86 million in, in 2019. 
and it's losing, I, I guess, what, $203 million so far this year? Yeah, through Q3, a really shocking almost 5x of what it did in Q1 through 3 in 2019. So kind of a surprise there. But the company has seen so much growth this year that it probably just decided to invest. Just to kind of put that in perspective, the way they make money as a company is they sell, can't get rid of this, they sell Robux to kids, or you can buy a subscription that comes with discounted Robux. So they're trying to move people over to kind of the SaaS side of things. Now, their S1 says that's kind of a niche part of their business, not the biggest part of it. So really they sell Robux, but you can't really count them as revenue until they're kind of used because they're kind of like more like bookings or, or kind of gross spend. So they track bookings as well, and then they recognize that over a 23-month period, which is the kind of the current life of an average paying Roblox, Robux user. And there's been some insane growth there. So in 2018, they sold about 500 million in bookings. And then in 2019, it was 694 million. And then in just the first three quarters of this year, it was 1.24 billion. That's the most bonkers number I, I, I read in some time. So I bet they're spending in anticipation of a lot of revenue growth next year. It's going to be fun to see. Danny, though, if you were laying a bet, how much does COVID's end kind of bring Roblox back to planet Earth? I don't think it will. I mean, I, I think one of the secrets to Roblox, which I, I don't think a lot of people have seen, is, is how important the developer community is here. You know, a lot of the original content obviously is built by kids for other kids. What's happened over the last couple of years is the platform has just skyrocketed in popularity is developers, professional developers and developer houses have actually started targeting the platform. In the first three quarters of 2019, the company paid out about 72 million from its platform. That's people who spend Robux on those particular games. In the first three quarters of this year, they put out 209 million bucks. So 209 versus 72 million the year before. And I expect that to continue. So it's really a marketplace, a safe marketplace, one that is fairly positive. It's targeted at young kids. It has incredible market saturation, and I expect a lot more developers to be continuing to target this platform going forward. And just to wrap this up before we move on to Wish, uh, what is Roblox going to be worth? People were talking about how, you know, Unity went public earlier this year. It's a gaming company. This is a gaming company. If we apply Unity's multiple to Roblox, it's worth like a bajillion dollars. It will not get that multiple because it is not a SaaS company. It is a gaming company, and so it will have a much lower multiple. In its, uh, I think, 2019 Series G, if I recall correctly, it was worth about 7.3x revenue. At about 10x revenue in its last quarter, it's worth about $10 billion. So we'll see where it lands, Danny. Look, if you're uh, listening and you're an Extra Crunch subscriber, we've actually done a lot of in-depth reporting on Roblox over the last couple of years. We wrote an EC1 uh, by Sherwood Morrison last year, doing a huge deep dive into the origin story. The company's formation was actually all the way back in 1985. Wow. Uh, it's been a multi-decade experience. And then just a few months ago, our, our, I believe our colleague Ron Miller did an in-depth interview with the technical team at Roblox talking about scaling up and the, and the tools they use in their infrastructure play. So whether you're on the technical side, the product side, huge amount of deep reporting on Extra Crunch to take a look. But let's go over to Wish. I want three wishes, but clearly uh, Wish has gotten billions of wishes from hundreds <laughs> of millions of people. Um, Alex, what's going on over there? Uh, I just love hearing you start a segue and not have the second half of it thought up yet. And so you get to the comma in the sentence and you're like, and I want three wishes and wish to revenue. Yeah, Alex, over to you. Uh, okay, so I didn't think wish was this big. So just looking at some big top line numbers in 2018, it grew revenues to 1.73 billion, which is up 57%. Then growth really slowed down. And in 2019, it only did $1.9 billion in revenue, up just about 10%. Now, Danny, if we zoom in to just the first three quarters of this year, growth accelerated. 32% to what, and it had 1.75 billion in total revenue. So we've seen again, an acceleration in the COVID era for a business that was decelerating, not surprising to see this IPO now. I just didn't think Wish was that big. You know, I, I thought it was smaller. 
It's a big company, and it's been around a long time. And, and as a reminder, if you're looking for the S1, it's under the, the company brand name of Context Logic, not yes. under Wish. That's the name of the app. The, the challenge, I think, for the company, the, the real headwind for this company is, is actually not COVID. It's not e-commerce. It's not a lot of other things. It's actually changes to the postal treaty between the United States and China. Wish is completely built around this model of essentially drop shipping relatively cheap products or extremely cheap products from China to the United States. And for the last couple of years, it's mostly been built around egregiously low prices that are signed between the U.S. and China and, and whatever the United Postal Delivery Treaty is. Those rates actually went up in July. One of the kind of secrets that sort of listen the S1 as a risk factor, but it sort of already happened. It's guaranteed. It's not a Trump or a Biden issue at this point. It's, it's sort of universal that we shouldn't be subsidizing Chinese shipments to the U.S. Across the board, which will have higher prices on Chinese goods, and the vast majority of their goods come from China. So the company has said that they're going to try to diversify to other countries. They're going to try to ameliorate some of those damages by handling logistics more. But the reality is their prices are going to go up. And I think that's going to affect the, the value of the company going forward. Yeah. And this is actually, uh, I wanted to bring this up in the context of gross margins, because one thing that I don't like to see in a business is its gross margins deteriorate as it grows. Because you begin to wonder if it's being forced to discount to drive volume, or it's simply selling goods that don't have the same price control. It's hard to say. But in 2018, Wish had gross margins of 84%, which is fantastic. It's really great. And then that fell to 77% in 2019, which is pretty good, but not quite as good. And then that dropped to 65% in the first three quarters of 2020. So we could be seeing some of the postal impact driving some changes to its economics, but certainly that's not moving in the right direction. And Danny, as we saw, it, it, its uh, unprofitability went from essentially break even to losing 176 million in the first three quarters of this year. So uh, growth, great, reacceleration, fantastic, but some issues there on the economics and revenue quality side. But look, the, the good news for, for both companies is the founders, or at least the main founders for both companies have done very, very well. So for Wish, Peter, the, the co-founder there, owns 19% of the company pre-IPO, uh, which is a really astonishingly high number. Yep. And uh, at Roblox, despite its long history, David owns 12% of the company. And so, I mean, in both cases, I think the founders held on to quite a bit of equity all the way through to the end. Do you think the the Roblox CEO gets paid in Robux? <laughs> well, you know, those Bitcoin startups were like, we'll pay you in Bitcoin, right? Yeah. That, that's that's the way to double down on your platform. Don't pay me in stock options. Pay me in in-game currency. That's how much I believe in my, my company. Can we talk about DoorDash? Is it we time? Can, we, we can. All right. So but my DoorDash I, hasn't arrived. So I'm a little hungry and hangry. That's just your standard personality, Danny. You're just, <laughs> you're just, I've, I've never seen you roll into the show and been like, you know what, guys, today was a good day. I feel good. <laughs> I just, I feel calm in my soul. There's a spring in my step and the sun is out. No, uh, DoorDash. So this fell through the cracks last week because we taped on Thursday. I believe this dropped Friday and then Airbnb filed and then everyone else filed. So now we're getting to it. So it's about a week late. Sorry. But DoorDash, Danny, is one of the best funded companies really of all time. It raised like two and a half billion dollars. Why do you think this company was so able to attract that kind of mountain of cash while it was private? It's in the success notes, right? So uh, its revenues in 2018, uh, about 300 million bucks going up to about 890 million in 2019. But the, the crazy growth actually started this year. I mean, this, this is the COVID story. Yeah. Up 226% in 2020 thus far. 1.92 billion in the first three quarters in, in top line revenue. And the gross margins are actually improving at the same time. And this is actually the there miracle of the story. So unlike Wish, where we're seeing kind of compression on gross margins, very concerning in the gross margin story for DoorDash in the first three months of 2019, about 40% going up to 53% this year. So you have this rapid high, you know, top line growth, better gross margins, tightening losses. It's a really, really positive story. 
it's an amazing story, especially because we've had some visibility into the kind of U.S. and global food delivery market via a couple of comps in the market. Uber Eats being, of course, the one that I think about the most. And the funny thing about Uber Eats has been, despite lots and lots of growth, it's still deeply unprofitable. And so I was expecting DoorDash to, to walk in with high levels of growth and a dumpster fire bottom line. But instead, I was entirely wrong. It is a much higher quality business than I thought. And my concern shifted away from its ability to do well by itself to what does its success mean for the ecosystem? Is it absorbing too much of the restaurant spend and the possible courier revenues? Is it managed to accrete so much to itself that it kind of puts the other two sides of the marketplace at danger, at risk? I don't know, restaurants are suffering. So it's, it's hard for me to say, but certainly the, the core mechanics of the business appear to be working well for the firm. And I wouldn't be surprised, and I hate to get this far over my skis, but if it managed to defend its private valuation, you know? I, I think it will. And, and, and even better, you know, from a resiliency point of view, cash on hand, $1.6 billion. So, I mean, I mean you know, they, they have raised a lot of money. A lot of it's actually on the balance sheet. And that means that they have a lot of finesse to go into uh, the public markets, you know, later this year. I think it's a, a really strong story. Now, the, the question is, is are there, you know, the habits that people have formed around buying restaurant delivery, doing that consistently, will that hold up post-COVID when you can actually go back to a restaurant and socialize with friends? I don't know. I, I, you know, I, I have certainly delivered more in the last couple of months than I have like in my entire life. Do I want lukewarm lasagna from the Italian place down the street versus just walking out my front door and not being a lazy ass? No, I don't. I, at least for me, I intend to cut back. I also like all the marketing they send me. I do order every time they send me 30 free bucks in the mail because that's nice. But we'll see. I do think that there's going to be a little bit of a sea change there. Just to put this in perspective, the same question is over Wish, and it's also over Roblox. These are companies going public when they have a really tasty growth story to tell investors, and then we're all going to find out next year what happens with COVID, and then what happens to their results. We don't know. But if you're going to go public, you want to go public when your numbers look the best, and they decided that that is now. So off we go. But we're going to go ahead and now close the book on IPO filings that we have and talk about a company that we expect to see an IPO filing from, probably Danny H1 2021 is what I'm thinking. Q1, Q2 yeah, next year. I, I guess we kind of expected, I, I guess it kind of got pushed back. I mean, at one point I thought it was going to go out this year. I, I think Wait, that window has closed. Who are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about Robinhood. There. We should probably say that. I, I, that's my fault. I didn't actually introduce it, but I was <laughs> starting to. <laughs> we should just talk one. about an entire company the entire time without naming the name. And Do a guessing guess. game. Exactly. Friday yeah. trivia. Uh, but uh, Robinhood announced today on Friday, one of its co-CEOs is actually stepping down. My joke in my newsletter about this was that they've gone from having no CEOs to one CEO, because if you have two people in charge, you have no people in charge, is my general observation in life. And the instant market read after Fortune, I believe, broke this story was that this is a company preparing to go public. You can't roll into the public markets in a super regulated space with a Silicon Valley hunky-dory, let's all hold hands and be CEO together model. You want to have it be as buttoned up as possible to prove to investors that you're serious and you're not just an app for Wall Street bets kids to donk off their allowance on that you're a material platform. And Danny, I think we talked about Robinhood's revenue growth the other days. So we don't really need to retread that. But can you ever recall a company going public with two CEOs? I, I couldn't while we were prepping for this show. I can't remember one that goes public with two CEOs. I mean, we, we learned in July of this year at Netflix that the longtime head of programming, Ted Sarandos, was becoming co-CEO along with Reed Hastings, which is you know, widely considered to be sort of a successor story, yes. storyline going on over there. So, I mean, it's not uncommon to see this occasionally with public companies. 
I do think it's a sign that you're trying to sort of clean up the leadership structure to make everything look good. It is interesting, though, to not find like another suitable role for the person. He's staying on the board. He's not like, you know, moving to Venice. Maybe he is moving to Venice. I mean, you, there are presumably flights if Alitalia can survive in the next couple of months with another Dude, that's bailout from the European Union. Uh, but, but this is a different show. I, 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 I don't think you generally see the founders literally leaving a couple of weeks or months right before an IPO. I wonder if they're having some some friction about about what's going on. The Fortune story yeah. said that uh, Vlad Tenev, who's going to stay CEO, is the more visionary guy, and Bajubat was uh, a bit more in the weeds. And honestly, those are kind of the two personalities and startup CEOs, and you, they probably clash a little bit. I mean, I, I don't have any inside dirt on Robinhood, though I've covered the company a lot this year. It's pretty buttoned up, frankly. They don't they don't reach out a lot other than via pretty canned statements. Uh, it's it's happening. I'm excited about this IPO because there's so much inside of it that I don't know, and also it's got a crypto play. It's got you know fintech. It's it's going to be great. Talking about canned statements, we should talk about one of our own subsidiaries. All right. You like that? Yeah, that was that's... a great segue. That was the world's best segue right that... there. I don't know where to go with it, though. So the problem is with the segue, <laughs> when you, it's like dropping a wet water balloon in my lap. Like, it's funny, but then I'm like, now nah, I've got wet pants. I need to go to the mall. So, um... see, see, well, we talked about DoorDash and its tasty exit. Uh, this is this is definitely not as tasty. It's very canned. Oh, 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 oh. See, it's like spam. Got... All right. Yeah, all right. Got, well, got, I'll got. open this tin of Campbell's soup that's gone bad. And talk about how we're selling HuffPo to BuzzFeed, Danny, which was a surprise and actually broke via the Wall Street Journal. Well, we were having an internal all hands here at TechCrunch, which was <laughs> a really whimsical moment. Um, yeah, so, so our parent company, Verizon Media, you know, uh, announced uh, in a, with a new partnership with BuzzFeed that we're actually selling off HuffPost, which is sort of a, a lateral sister brother uh, publication here at Verizon yeah. Media for uh, an exchange of stock from BuzzFeed to Verizon Media, and Verizon Media is going to pay cash into BuzzFeed. So they bought a stake in the company, they're handing HuffPost over, and then there's a bunch of other stuff around advertising, content distribution, and other goodies. Which matters. On, which matters. Yeah. You know, we don't actually know a lot internally. If you think there's canned statements outside of the company, there's a lot of journalists walking around Verizon Media, so I don't think the company wants to tell us anything about what's really going on. <laughs> so I'm not sure we have a particular insight, or if there, I don't even think there's anything I know that I literally can't say. Yeah, no, there's no, there's nothing we can't talk about, but I, I will say that, so a couple of thoughts and then, and then we can stop. But like one thing that I've seen media brands struggle with is doing a lot of things. And HuffPo, when it launched was kind of Ariana and her friends, and it was super gossipy to some degree. And it was like, you knew you were reading that thing. And over time, it felt like HuffPo expanded quite a lot horizontally and ended up getting a little bit lost in the mix was my read. And, you know, this happened also to a publication like Mashable. I mean, for uh, you know, back in the day, Mashable was big and growing and very influential. And then it kind of kept expanding out until it didn't really do anything well, especially that made it stand out from the mix of other kind of blogs out there. This is actually why I think TC is still alive and why I was glad to come back about a year ago, because TC still kind of does its thing. It's still kind of the weird kid on the block with a mohawk picking its nose and flicking boogers at people. It's great. I love it here. I'm going to put that on my resume. That's exactly the first line of my resume. I do write CVs for a living. Duty one. There you go. BuzzFeed has had some of that issue with its with you know its its changes in content over time. But the reason why I'm excited about this this combination or the sale is the BuzzFeed News team kicks ass. I really like them. I've been a paying subscriber to BuzzFeed News. It's like five bucks a month forever. I think they do great work. They've broken big stories and you know throw the the really great HuffPo journalists in with the BuzzFeed News crew. Maybe they can collab. I don't know. That to me is optimistic. Of course, I'm, I'm slightly worried, Danny, about the, the axe coming down on our neck to some degree, but we're being honest, but uh, I don't, I haven't heard anything about that. So we're probably safe, I think, here at BMG. 
Maybe. Maybe. Welcome to media. <laughs> this is what it's like on our side of the table. We tell jokes Every, and then we go home and cry. Yeah, um, you know, and, 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 you know, look, on top of this consolidation, we also learned that Ezra Klein, one of the co-founders of Vox, is is leaving the company to head over to the New York Times following Matthew Iglesias and one of the other co-founders of Vox. So I, I just think across the digital media world, particularly those companies that are ad-driven, there's a just complete consolidation, a, a, a retrenchment, if you will, sure. um, from an advertising market that was just very, very tough in 2020. You know, in many ways, it's the complete opposite of every IPO story we just covered. COVID was not pleasant to the media world, despite the election and obviously COVID being huge news drivers. The reality is, is no one really wants to advertise around politics and or coronavirus health scare stories. So yeah. really, it was a tough year for a lot of media companies. And I think we're seeing the effects now. Yeah. As was going to the Times, Matthew Iglesias started his own Substack. The uh, editor-in-chief of Vox is also leaving. They're hiring for 10 open roles, I just saw. So if you need a media job... Uh, go check that out. Uh, now, that's in the meantime, an interesting question. Oh. Why Alex is looking at open roles at Vox? What's going on, Alex? You're, oh, you, I do a lot. I do a lot of, of uh, uh, equity going on here. Uh, I, I think if I quit TechCrunch again, they won't let me back. So I'm going to be here for a while. I, I think but, we've. Uh, I believe our, our colleague Daryl Thurington has has quit twice and has come back or or come here three times. So so yes, you, you get one more. You get one more slot. Critically, he's Canadian. So I think oh. you get an extra life if you're if you're Canadian. I don't it's, think if you're from Oregon. Passport. Yes, right. yes exactly. It's, a, it's, a, it's a Justin Trudeau loophole. Uh, listen, uh, we're going to end the show there. Uh, if we have jobs on Monday after that, we will be back Monday morning with a lot more equity. It's going to be a busy week. So get ready. Danny, thank you. And we'll see you all soon. 